Hey, here we are. <laughs> Let's see, did I do this right? I know, I'm still getting used to this. Um, I think, I think we're on. Are we on? Let's see here. There we go. <laughs> there we, go. we got it. We got it. Everything's on. Okay, there we go. <laughs> um, let's see. Cancel. I don't know. It's prompting me with things. Let's see here. And then, hey, there we go. Okay, we got, got all the buttons pressed. Okay, here we go. <laughs> hey, guys. Um, for anybody who is tuning in right now to watch it live, I've been, um, oh, yeah, I was going to move this closer. Last time I noticed it wasn't quite close enough. So hopefully that sounds a little bit better. Um, thank you for everybody who's listened to the podcast. Uh, now the data is coming in, the statistics, and I'm seeing people actually listening to it. I've actually gotten some feedback. So thank you so much for everybody who's listened and who's tuning in live. I really appreciate it. Um, this is all new to me. And here, one of these days, I, I promise this is going to go smoothly when I start. I'm not going to be fumbling around. <laughs> um, I did already start. I did already pour. Um, anybody who um, clocked in, listened, watched live or anything, last week's episode, um, I'll let you all know that I had a foot surgery. This is day 15 after foot surgery. And... The new thing going on with my foot is that I'm having nerve pain. So it randomly hits me like in spasms. And so I'm trying to pregame a little bit here and getting drinking the bubbles. So maybe it will, I won't spaz out during this hour <laughs> and you don't see my face twitch and I try to keep it together. So if I'm drinking a little bit more and I start stumbling by the end of this, that is why I'm self-medicating with champagne. Speaking of champagne, um, this episode is about Vuclicot. I'm sure a lot of you have seen this bottle. Here we go. I also, there we go. Yellow label Vuclicot. Um, it's everywhere. They do a fantastic job marketing. Um, I was going on their, their website and research for this and just being reminded how fantastic they do with marketing all their cool stuff. I know I have a cooler by them that holds like one bottle and you can carry it on its side. It's like really dope. Um, and they just have a great Instagram page and um, they do events and it all looks really cool. Maybe one day I'll be lucky enough to be invited to one of them. <laughs> it's like picturesque Vogue. Their events look amazing. Um, the yellow label on there. This um, whole podcast is about Vu Clicquot. So as the title goes, um, Barb Nicole Clicquot Ponsardine is her name. Okay. And um, just a little tidbit here in case y'all want any good wine reading, if you're interested. Um, this is a fantastic book. It is The Widow Clicquot. It's by Talar J. Mazeo. Sorry if I butchered your name. I'm not the best. Um, it is fantastic. It's not super long, reads very well. That's my personal opinion on it. Um, it's definitely a staple. I have a lot of wine books in my collection. So, um, I mean, 
maybe I'm a little bit biased on that. Like I love wine books, um, but I love the history connected with this as well. And we're going to talk about this. This isn't a review of this book. Okay. She did a fantastic job of covering her very well written, um, you know, um, romanticizes the time. It's really great the way she writes it. Um, however, I did some outside stuff as well to kind of round out the story. So I researched um, Barb Nicole. I don't know what she went by. If she was like, hey, Barb, I don't know what name she went by back then. <laughs> Let's just call her Madame. So Madame uh, Clicquot, um, I read her story and I researched her years ago when I first started learning about wines. So that would have been 13, 14 years ago when I first started studying about wine. So it's been a long time since I've revisited her story, but it really stuck in my brain and I just absolutely loved it. It was so empowering. It's all about feminism and um, just feats that you couldn't even imagine have been overcome in that day and age. Um, so I'm sorry if this dots on a little bit and I get a little crazy talking about the story because I'm, I really love it. Um, I have all my sheets here on the side. Um, no cards used this time. This time I used full page yellow legal paper. I had to stop myself when I got to five pages of notes. Um, cause listen, we only have an hour here and, um, I don't want to bore you to death. Um, <laughs> but there are a lot of dates and numbers and things that I'm not going to remember off the top of my head and I want to do it justice. So I have a lot of things written down. Um, you know, it's interesting when I was re-researching this and what really stuck in my mind from initially learning about her life and what she did for champagne. I really romanticized it and now restudying her and relearning the story and the history surrounding it. It's a lot more real now than it was when I first learned about it. Um, so I am going to be really rounding her story out a lot with history and what was going on at that time to really give you an idea and context on maybe why she was the way she was. Mm. Mm. Hey, Huck. Huck is logged in. Hey, buddy. Um, a cigar friend we made when we were down in Dallas, Texas, and we've been friends digitally for years now. Yet again, putting putting it in a cooler. It's fantastic. I love this cooler. You can find them on Amazon and stuff. Um, all right. So Barb Nicole Ponsardine. We'll start this out with some dates for you, okay? She was born in 1977. She died in 1866. She died at 88 years old. I don't know if y'all know anything about history, but that is super old for that time range. She, <laughs> she outlived a lot of people in her life. Um, to put this in context, so you had a French Revolution going on around this time. So you have, let me see the dates here, make it all correct. Um, let's see here. You had 1877, 1777 to 1866 is when she lived. Okay. She was married at 21 years old, widowed at 27. 
Vu Clico means widow Clico, the widow, the book, if you saw the title, widow. Um, so she was, the French Revolution hit, she was 11 years old when the French Revolution hit. And if anybody knows anything about the French Revolution, so it was a time in an age where the poor was very poor. They were starving to death in France. There were some very tough years as far as droughts go. Um, agriculture was drying up. Then you had the royalties and the wealthy being extremely wealthy and extremely extravagant. There was a huge gap economically between the two. And it was bubbling up and it was, you were on the cusp of an uprising. And that was the French Revolution. So you may have heard of um, Mary Antoinette. A lot of people still um, portray her in Halloween costumes. There's movies, shows, all that stuff. Um, well, back then, that's who it was, who was queen and the king. Um, and she was very extravagant, um, lived very well, high hair, expensive dresses, everything. Here we go. And so that was in Paris, France. So everything broke out. So imagine this. You have, I'm trying to paint the picture here. So Barb, Nicole, Madame Ponsardine, she was from a very rich family, like super rich. Her father was the richest man in rings. The textile industry was the big industry back then. And he was the guy with fabric. He was the richest guy. He also was striving for to have a title, to be somebody in politics. He wants to be a politician. Um, so in order to do that, he tried to basically brush elbows with royalties. So he sent his children and rings to a school. It was like a private school. It was expensive. And the royals um, went there. Okay, keep that in mind. So you have her as a kid. 11 years old, French Revolution's about to break out. You have a very rich father and family. You have also, they're making what's called Hotel Ponsardine, which is an extravagant home that he's building. So that's going on as well with this, all of this time period. You have King and Queen, the Queen, the famous Mary Antoinette, just flourishing in all the riches while the poor is getting poorer, starving to death. Um, you had an uprise of the poors against the rich and the in the royalty. They wanted to take down the monarchy. Okay. Not only was her father wealthy and all that, but also he had just been appointed to a committee and not any committee, but the committee that literally crowned the king and queen. So he's extremely close to the monarchy. He is the guy they want to hang. Okay. So they stormed Paris. They stormed Bastille. Um, then you had um, King Louis. Um, you had Queen Marie Antoinette. And they became the prisoners in Versailles. You had that scenario going on in Paris. A stone throw away in Reims. The word got out. And her father was like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? How are we going to save ourselves? They're going to kill us. The people are going to uprise and are going to kill us. Everything was bubbling up in the streets. So he honkered, hunkered down in his hotel, Ponsardine. Their trusted dressmaker, he got to go to the school, sneak his daughter out the side door, 
dress her in poor clothing, sneak her to her dress shop and hide her up in the attic for how long? I don't know. The records don't show how long she was hiding up there for. Eventually got moved to Hotel Ponsardine. Here's an interesting thing. Her father was so smart and a survivor. He decided he saw the foresight of what was going to happen in his town and he switched sides. He decided to become a rebel and say, like, down with the monarchy. He was so convincing that he ended up being the leader of that revolution in his city, took down the churches, also Catholicism and religion and all. It was it was outlawed during this time period as well. It was like freedom in the streets and everything. And he was pro all that. Secretly, though, within his family, they were holding on to their wealth and they were holding on to their religion just secretly. So that was the name of the game. During this time period of the French Revolution and um, uh, Vuclico's upbringing, there's very little about her child upbringing. I mean, there's like no records because they basically hid away. The family hid away just to try to survive. I mean, it was so crazy. <laughs> Hold on a minute. Let me get this right. Guillotines were popular. They were so popular for entertainment in the streets that women took on the fashion of guillotines by cutting their hair off in bobs and wearing red ribbons around their necks. For any of you who do not know what a guillotine is, it is the apparatus where you lay down and a giant blade falls down on your neck. Um, so that was also going on. There was a lot of murder going on. There's a lot of bad stuff going on. But another thing that happened during this process of French Revolution was a middle class uprised. And the middle class decided they wanted, they deserved to dress nice too. So fashion started changing. And who does fashion? Her father in the textile industry. So somehow, not only did he survive, not only did he protect his family, not only did he become a leader of the revolution and behind closed doors, a supporter of the monarchy, playing two sides of the coin, but he also profited and flourished during it because of the fabric and the introduction of new fashion, not only for royals and the upper class, but the middle class of the uprising. It was genius. He was a very, very smart man, definitely a survivor, definitely something his daughter picked up on. His oldest daughter, by the way, as well. Um, okay, so we got that right. You've got this girl. She's 11 years old. She's getting introduced to the French Revolution. This entire time of where she should be growing up, playing music, singing, wearing like handmade dresses, being courted, going to parties, dances, all these things. She's getting none of that. And she's being whisked away and kept in the shadows just to help her survive. So she grew up like that. Not only that, but she also got married in secret. She got married in the caverns underneath the home, the Hotel Ponsardine, so secretively that they whispered the ceremony because they're afraid somebody was going to hear because religion was outlawed. Very interesting. And then whisked away through the caverns that later on would be filled with champagne for the Vuclico. Mm. I hope some of you are also drinking because I know I am. Okay. So that's kind of the gist of it.
her childhood, okay? Let's fill in some blanks here. Her father's wealth. So to give you an idea back then, okay? So born in 1977, so 11 years old. Her father's racking in around $800,000 a year at that time. That's what I found how much he was making. I don't think that that's inflated for what it is in today's time. That's just flat out is what it said he made. He was the wealthiest man in that city at the time. Um, yep, at 28 years old, her father, at 28 years old was when he was placed on the committee that crowned the king and queen. Um, yeah, he was so smart. His story was so interesting. I was just like, man, what a, what a adaptive man and to help his family survive. Um, 1794 was when they had their secret wedding. Here's a really cool thing about her as well. Her family and her heritage. So I read that she, um, was named after her maternal grandmother and her maternal grandmother's last name was Ruinart. And if you out there know anything about wine and champagne, Ruinart, you've heard of it, R-U-I-N-A-R-T, Ruinart, okay? So Ruinart was the very first champagne house established in 1729. Okay, so not only did she make this amazing wine brand that we all know today, but also her lineage is of champagne. I was really surprised by that. I didn't know that before. Um... So Ruinart is her maternal grandmother's name, okay? So her grandmother's father's name is Nicholas Ruinart. Nicholas Ruinart's uncle was Dom Chiri Ruinart. Dom Chiri Ruinart. He was, he was um, um, a monk. His older buddy that taught him about champagne's name was Dom Perignon. I think I've heard that name before. So Dom Perignon taught his little buddy, Dom Chiri Ruinart, about how to make champagne. And then Dom Chiri Ruinart taught his nephew, Nicholas, about it. And then Nicholas started the very first champagne house in 1729 called Ruinart. How freaking cool is that? How freaking cool is that? <laughs> she literally has champagne running through her veins. I couldn't believe that. I read that. I was like, what? This is crazy. The lineage is crazy. Oh my gosh. The very first champagne house. Like, how cool is that? It's like, you're a celebrity. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So, um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another thing about her. So, it's really interesting. I'll bring that up later though. It, she wasn't... She wasn't a feminist. She wasn't about women's rights. You, you have this idea, and I had this idea in my head, too, that she did all these things as a widow, female winemaker, made this wine brand, is super successful, all these things, right? And she wasn't pro-women. She wasn't pro-women. She wasn't pro-women's rights. And this was a day and age, also, that women's rights and suffrage, like, all that was coming up. That was the time that the fight was happening. And she wasn't... She didn't do anything for it. It was very interesting. And, you know, I was reading that and I was thinking about it. And you, ha you have to go back to how she grew up. You know, she grew up 
under a patriarchy. She grew up not only under her father taking care of them, but a very male dominated world. He protected her. I don't know. She may have had, you know, she, she lived a blessed life financially. You know, she didn't struggle as a poor child. Um, she did have to go in hiding somewhat, but I don't know. It was interesting. You would think, I mean, today's day and age, if you're a woman and you're an entrepreneur or an owner of something or CEO, you are pro women's rights. You're like, yes, we're persevering. We're taking over this and that. That wasn't her. Now she inspired plenty of people in the future for that, but that wasn't her. That wasn't who she was. She didn't do that. Um, she surrounded herself with men in the business industry. How she handed over her wine industry, her entire wine brand to a man, not her daughter. She had one daughter, by the way, um, Clementine, but she didn't even hand it over to her daughter. She underestimated her daughter, her daughter's intelligence. She wanted her to marry her daughter off to a wealthy man, which she did. Um, I don't know. It's just very interesting that that happened. I mentioned how she inspired other people. So here's another one. Oh my gosh, all these wine brands I was looking up. So here's another winery you might have heard of is um, Louise Pomery. So Pomery Champagne and the full name's on there. So she was also a widow and she was inspired by Nicole, Barb Nicole. I don't know what she went by. Um, I feel like we're on a first name basis. So she... <laughs> Miss Pomery or Vu Pomery, um, she died at 71 years old, a bit younger, but she was widowed at 41 years old, married off at 20 years old. And she started and ran her winery, which obviously was very um, popular because uh, it still runs today and it's fantastic. Um, another interesting thing about that time and age is what champagne was. And so in today's day and age, when you drink champagne, it's dry, it's bubbly, it's crisp, it's light. You know, it's 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 light, it's crisp. Okay, that's that's not what champagne was back then. It was thick. It was extremely sweet. The bubbles like came later. Like it was very very low on the bubble factor. The bubbles came later also because she invented how to do that. She invented riddling. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself here. I tried to straighten this all out and I'm all over the place. I know. I'm sorry if y'all are like, I'm not following. It's a lot. It's a lot in timeline. It's a lot in history. It's a lot of numbers. Um, I'm trying to make this come out right. I don't want to miss anything because everything, everything's so important. So, okay. So 11 years old, French Revolution had to hide away. She was from a rich family. Her dad was super important, was a survivor, kept his, his family alive. She got married off to a man that owned a champagne house. It was not super successful. It was somewhat successful. Really, the wealth came from her dad's side of the family. I mean, the textile industry is where it was. That's where everything was at the time in that region was textiles. It was so much so that champagne was a secondary thought. Champagne used to be given with orders of textiles. It's like a gift. It's like a bonus. 
you didn't even like really buy it. It was mainly given away, which was I found very interesting. Um, this super sweet dessert kind of wine that we now call champagne, which is totally different. than If you drink what it was back then, you'd be like, this does not taste like champagne. Um, okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. You don't want to jump ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay. All this is after. I don't want to... I know the middle of her story so well that I didn't even write it down. <laughs> I mean, I wrote some notes down, but honestly, I've read it so many times and I know it so much. We're just going to talk about it. So she got married. Um, her husband died, typhoid fever. So croaked out. She was young, 27 years old, 27 years old, widowed. That at that time period was a death sentence. You're widowed, you're done. I mean, she wouldn't have been done done because she came from a wealthy family, but you know, basically she was desolate. Um, she saw this champagne thing. She got married off at 11 years old. No, that's when the French Revolution happened. Um, that's when she was snuck off from the school and everything was 11 years old. Not that she was married at 11. She was married at 21 years old, widowed at 27, only married for six years. Um, but so that threw me off. So she got, she got widowed at 27 years old. She was like, I want to make this work. I want to make the champagne house work, which wasn't doing much at the time. Okay. It wasn't doing much at the time. It was, in 1796, 8,000 bottles a year, okay? And then 1804, 60,000 bottles a year, huge jump. That was around um, seven years after her husband had taken over and had died. It was around 60,000 bottles a year. So her husband definitely helped it grow, but it wasn't what it is when she got done with it, okay? So she wanted to take it over. Her father-in-law, though, wanted to liquidate the champagne house. Well, she went to her father-in-law was like, please don't do this. Let me take it over. I can do it. He was like, you don't know anything about making champagne. And he says, okay, fine. I will let you take this over if you'll go and apprentice and learn how to make champagne. So she did. She put on her big girl pants and she went and learned it. And she came back and she started on it. And she started learning and she started making wine. And she started really thinking about how to make it better, how to not make it cloudy, how to make the bubbles stay in it, um, really revolutionizing also the bottle itself. I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but I tell my friends this, though. The bottom of this bottle, this hole that's in it, this punt, that's for stability. That's for stability. It used to not be that way. They used to be hand-blown bottles. Um and the pressure of the gas inside really used to make them be like bombs in a wine cellar because you would end up having this carbonation buildup inside this glass. It's not stable and it would just blow up and it'd be like stratton, just thrown everywhere glass. You're just getting hit. A lot of injuries in wine cellars back then. Anyways, they, um, they started doing the indention here that helped stabilize the entire bottle and be able to hold that carbonation inside, which was amazing. Something else that she invented was the riddling. So 
what happens is, is you have a secondary fermentation in the bottle, not to get too technical or anything for you guys, but part of making champagne is you have all these bottles lined up nose neck down and you go in and you move them just a little bit and move them just a little bit. So all the junk inside the bottle, the leaves and all the, the tidbits, they get moved around. So they constantly get stirred. Now, yes, it's made the same way, but one, you don't have bottles blowing up in cellars, murdering people and maiming them. And then also you have machines that do that stuff now. Well, back then when it first started, that wasn't the case. And you had to go in there and do it by hand. She invented that. She invented the idea of that. She invented being able to get bubbles into the bottle. Like she thought of that. She was so smart. She thought of that. She did so many different things. I'm trying to let my shirt go up here. She did so many different things. It was so ingenious. Um, Napoleon coming in and having a war Russia and England, and Napoleon ended up getting exiled. The Tsar and Russia put up a um, a block on all imports. At the time, she was exporting most of her wines to Russia, which is really interesting. But she was exporting most of it to Russia. She had the foresight, and listen, there was a naval blockade for Russia. It wasn't like, just don't come, and it was a big open sea. It was a naval blockade, so ships did not go into Russia. She got a ship of her own, stocked it up, and they sailed it into Russia because she had the foresight to know that the Russians would want to celebrate from defe defeating Napoleon, and she was correct. And she got it in and immediately sold it. Let's see if I got the numbers here. Um, the numbers here for that. <laughs> yeah, she ignored an import champagne Russia banned at the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1803 to 1815 were when those wars were happening. She sent 23,000 bottles of her 1811 vintage to Russia. So... She was like so smart. Not only did they receive the champagnes and continually receive them, but the Tsar, Alexander I, proclaimed that he will only drink Vuclico. That was his champagne of choice. Russians were crazy for Vuclico at that time period. I mean, they loved it. Not only did they love it because she got it over there and they celebrated defeating Napoleon and everything. But also when the Russians were in Reims during the war, they didn't pillage the village. They said, do not pillage the village. Like you need to pay for the champagnes if you're going to drink them. So all the champagne houses were like, wow, we're actually going to make money off this war. That's crazy. I thought we were going to get robbed. <laughs> 1811 was called the Comet Vintage. It was like the best of the best. It was an amazing vintage in Champagne, France. And she saw the war coming in. She thought, as everybody else thought, that she was going to be overtaken. And she had the foresight to try to get ahead of the game of her competitors, her male competitors, a very male-dominated industry. And she thought, you know what? They're going to come in here and they're going to steal all my champagnes. 
I'm going to get my good 1811 vintage and put it in the back of the cellar and put up a brick wall. So when the soldiers come in to take my champagnes, they'll take the stuff I'm okay with getting rid of. And all my good stuff is going to be stored in the back behind a brick wall. <laughs> How smart was that? I mean, when it ended, when the Napoleonic Wars ended, her competitors had lost their 1811 vintage. It had been stolen because, listen, it wasn't just the Russians that were in there. It was Russians. It was Napoleon. It was Russians. It was Napoleon. They were flipping back and forth on who was in control of that city or that town. So not everybody soldier-wise that went in there was nice and everything. But they flipped back and forth. And so when it was all said and done, everybody else, else's fantastic, like, going to make me a ton of money, 1811 champagne was gone. And... Barb Nicole Ponsardine, she had hers stored in the back, broke down the brick wall, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, had all the stuff stored up. And she got the Russians hooked on her champagne because they were in the village drinking it. She would hand the bottles up, so it says, hand the bottles up to officers and such that were riding on horses with like swords, and they couldn't open a bottle right you're holding your sword with one hand and you're holding a bottle of champagne with the other how are you going to open this that's where sabering was invented they would just pop the bottle off with the sword they were holding and drink it out the bottle how cool is that <laughs> so you had all these things happening at that time period i mean it was just a magical time that she was alive she invented riddling the champagne industry completely changed. It no longer was just a bottle that was given to textiles as like a freebie. That wasn't the case anymore. It was on its own. People were requesting it. People were wanting it. It used to be just like a luxury for just royals. Now everybody could buy it. It was really amazing. It was really also cool to know that like Russia was super into her champagnes, which was really cool to learn about as well. That the Tsar was like, mm, no, no, that stuff's for me. I want the bubbles. Bring it over here. Majority of her champagnes were exported to Russia, which was really cool. Mm. So let's get some numbers here on how things grew during her time. So I said in 1796, around the time it started, the Champagne House. The actual Champagne House actually started in 1772 by her husband's father, her father-in-law. And then quickly he passed it down to his son to take over. So in 1804, 60,000 bottles a year, okay? She took over. She pushed. Like I said, you had the 1811 um, vintage. You had the Napoleonic Wars, which were abysmal, 1803 to 1815. I mean, it was just a terrible time for Champagne. And all over, there's a war going on. So in 1816, 43,000 bottles a year. Not that great. Fast forward to 1821, 280 a year. 1850, 400,000 a year. <laughs> 1866, that was a year she passed away. It went to 750,000. Yeah, I think she definitely improved in selling her champagnes. Um, like I said in the beginning, she surrounded herself with men. 
she had a guy that um, she entrusted with her winery and was doing really great things. And that was also the person she handed off the winery to afterwards. He did the traveling. He was like a traveling sales guy. He would go around globally and try to sell the wines to other countries and other people, get the word out about it. He had all these ideas. The, um, the yellow label you see today, that was his idea, naming it Vuclicot. He was just like this inventor. He had all these ideas in his head to move the wine industry forward for that wine brand. Um, she ended up handing it over to her, which is wild to me. I thought that it would be handed down to her family members, and it wasn't. That was really interesting. She handed it off to the guy that just worked for her. She handed the whole company over to him. But but she was wealthy enough. No, no. We're not going to get upset. Come here. Always, we've got the palm psalm here. Are you, are you, what's out there? Oh, okay. Okay, we're going to let that go. Yeah, we're going to let that go. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to let that go. Yeah, yeah, we're going to let that go. <laughs> Sit down. We're going to let that go. Okay, guard pup. She's ferocious. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you had him, right? This was really interesting to me. Um, his name was Edward, and it passed down through his family for many, many generations. Um, but he was so good at what he did. He actually was the mayor of Reims for 20 years. He was a lot like her father. He had a lot of aspirations to be in politics. He had aspirations to, you know, he married his children off in really great, wealthy marriages. Um, he ended up being worth eight to ten billion dollars in today's standards, eight to ten billion dollars. Um, she was worth considerably more because she owned it um, and ran it and everything. But I found that very interesting that she handed that over to him. Um, they obviously had a good relationship. There were rumors that it was a romantic relationship. Nothing was solidified, though. Um, kind of makes you think, though. I mean, it was a long time ago, and the information historically about these are not that accurate. Listen, back then, they didn't have people who were doing posts of lives and putting their whole lives in some kind of documentary form. Um, and the history written about a widowed woman entrepreneur definitely was less than desirable to write about than the men in the world at that time. So there wasn't a ton of information about her in her life. So this is really what scrapped up from what was able to be found. Oh. So good. Mm. If y'all have had this before, I've had this before a long time ago. And I was like, eh, it's okay. I did a um, champagne tasting where I, I guided it uh, for a group of people. And this, and it was a blind tasting. And I was like, wow, this is tasting really good to me. And I hadn't had it for years. And now I'm just really into it again. Um, so go get you some. <laughs> mm. So, okay, we got that. She was, oh my gosh. So also in 1911, just to fast forward. So you have 1866 was where she died. It was 750,000 bottles a year. 
and then her successor, Edward, and his family, the Whirls, and everything took over. Um, by 1911, he was at two million a year bottles. Um, definitely made it skyrocket. She, in the beginning of this, I said she died at 88 years old. Like, that's a long life for that time range, okay? Like, people did not live that long back then. She ended up outliving her husband, her father, two of her great-grandchildren, her brother, and her daughter. She outlived all of them. It was really interesting. Um, and also is really interesting was that her great her great granddaughter Anne was a sole heir of her estate because everybody died. Everybody kept dying early in age, and that's the one that stuck around. Was her great granddaughter Anne uh, Montemort, I believe, was what her last name was. Um, Barb Nicole, she made a um, built a chateau, Chateau de Borsault, when her um, when her grandchild, her granddaughter got married. Like to celebrate that marriage, she built a chateau. That's what you do, I guess, when you're super rich back then. You just build a chateau for someone. Um, <laughs> anyways, her great granddaughter Anne um, inherited everything, so she inherited the um, the wealth. So not only probably did she inherit her great-grandmother's wealth, Vu Clicquot's wealth, but she probably inherited part of the Ponsardine textile wealth as well, um, would be my guess, um, of just wealthy family lineage. She was like, she was like what I thought Vu Clicquot would be. But like I said, she had a different upbringing. This was still in the... Um, women's suffrage trying to get a leg up kind of time period and she was like a force to be reckoned with first off she didn't want anything to do with the houses and the wealth and all that stuff and living that very posh life she liked to go hunting she was like um she was a founder of some women's motor club um she not only hunted but she did uh she planned and guided hunts on her property there were royalty that would come and hunt with her and was shocked when they found out a woman planned the hunt. Um, she was such a feminist for that time period. And fought like one too. Went to all the different things and was a big, big voice for that. Again, this is the great granddaughter of Vuclico, Anne. Anne, also a widow outlived her husband. She was married for about 10 years. She had four children and she outlived three of them. One of them outlived her. Um, she died in 1933 at 85 years old, almost got as old as her great grandmother. These are the crazy things she did. Okay. She founded a childcare school. Um, the uh, Chateau de Borsault, she let become a World War I armory, like infirmary, like a hospital between 1914 and 1918. At the age of 70, she schooled and became a head nurse at 70 years old so she could help tend to the wounded of World War I. 
Um, I believe I read that that home was also used in World War II. They were using both. But she ended up selling the home around the time of World War I. So I guess technically the World War II was just to deal with the house, not to deal with her because she sold it off already. Um, in 1898, she became the first woman in France to get a driver's license. She was also the first woman in France to get a speeding ticket one year later. <laughs> I don't know how. My husband asked me this. How did they know she was speeding? And I don't have the answer for that. But the speed limit was seven miles per hour. And she was doing 9.3 miles per hour. <laughs> I guess she was really hauling butt back then. I mean, can you imagine the cars back then? I mean, that's a pretty big jump. Seven miles per hour to 9.3 miles per hour. I really wonder what she was driving. Like, I couldn't find any information on that, but that sounds like a really cool story. This lady just hauling butt. Like, first women's driver's license. And already she's just, like, reeling through the streets. Mmm. Ah. And also, not only did she sell the Chateau de Boursault, but she also sold the Hotel Ponsardine. The one that um, Barb Nicole's father built. Like, and also, and also, um, not housed, but entertained Napoleon on several occasions. Um, he stayed there. Uh, he felt welcomed by the Ponsardine family. So she sold that off too. Now in today's time, Chateau de Bourseault makes champagne. It's a working chateau because vineyards are surrounding it. It's a working chateau. I've never personally seen that champagne or tasted it. So I can't speak to that, but sounds pretty cool for history purposes. Um, I don't know what has become of the Hotel Ponsardine, if that's still standing or not. I didn't look that up. Um, also, there's not information on all of this. So I tried to dig up as much information as I could on everything. Okay, so I got all that. All right. Okay. So the aftermath. Okay. So we've got um, Vu Clicquot. You, oh my gosh, I, I wrote all this stuff down. I hope this is all coming off good to you guys. Um, and it's just a lot of information to fill in for one hour. So... She started, she took over the champagne brand from her husband at 27 years old, widowed. After being married for six years, she made it boom. She handed it off to Edward, possibly her lover, not confirmed, but she handed it off to him instead of her only daughter, um, Clementine. She wanted Clementine to live a posh life, marry well, um, and she did. And she did live a good life. They were from a wealthy family. Um, her mother was wealthy many times over. So you had all of that, right? Well, now, Edouard does not own Vuclico anymore. Just spoiler alert. <laughs> it got sold off, okay? <laughs> like a lot of other places got sold off too. So, in 1986, it got bought by Louis Vuitton. I think some of you've heard of that name before, Louis Vuitton. So here's some numbers for you. Louis Vuitton was founded in 1854. Um, now, Vuclico is part of LVMH, Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy. 
That group started in 1987, okay? Now, Louis Vuitton merged with Moet Hennessy was the name of the brand. Moet Hennessy is two things combined as well. So Moet Hennessy was established in 1971, and that was the combine of the merger of Moet and Chandon and Hennessy. Moet and Chandon was established in 1743. Hennessy was established in 1765. In today's time, LVMH is worth $500 billion. And I'll tell you why, people. Because they own a bunch of stuff. <laughs> they are a luxury brand. They own 75 luxury brands. In today's time, Dior, Christian Dior, owns majority of LVMH. Economically, and don't ask me to describe these because I don't know the difference, but economically they own 42% of the company and they own 59% of voting. So they are majority owner, Christian Dior, of LVMH. This is all crazy. I looked some of these brands up. And all these brands are underneath it, guys. So you have, I don't know if you've heard any of these before, okay? They own Belvedere Vodka. I love Belvedere Vodka. That is how I like my martinis is with Belvedere Vodka. Love it. If you know me, if you're listening and we've been out to dinner, you know I love myself a Belvedere Vodka. Anyways, so Belvedere, Cheval Blanc, Chateau Kim, Colgan, Dom Perignon, We've heard that today, haven't we? Krug, Ruinart, also have heard of. Vu Clicquot, um, that's the title of today. Okay, they own all those. Then clothing-wise, they own Fendi, Gavinci, Marc Jacobs, Fenty, Sephora, all underneath this LVMH. Bulgari, Hublot, Tag, and Tiffany and Company. That's not all 75 brands, folks. That's just the ones that I pointed out to right now. So, yeah, it's worth $500 billion. That is who owns Vuclico in today's time. And I guess if your company's worth $500 billion, you could make all the fancy schmancy things and the really cool events that I want to be invited to um, and have all the cool stuff. I love how they've marketed the company. I love the backstory. I love the origin story of Vuclico and how she persevered through and how she was so smart. She hustled through the, the Napoleonic Wars and she hosted Napoleon in Hotel Ponsardine. Also, by the way, during the Napoleonic Wars, when he was in town, she was like, come on in. I mean, she was just trying to stay alive. Something her father taught her. All these things. It was like a great, great story. Um, but fast forward to today no longer in the family. And honestly, her brand that she made wasn't kept in the family the minute she died. Shares were passed on, sure. I read that shares were passed on to the family, um, but ownership-wise, she was the only owner of the company the entire time. She passed it down to somebody else before she even died. She stopped being owner of her wine company before she died when she retired um, in that chateau. That's the one she spent her days in. Mm. I hope y'all enjoyed this story. 
to like the two of you watching. I really hope you enjoy the story. I find it really interesting thinking about that time. It was so hard. You know, I can't imagine being not only the widowed woman that was taking on the wine company and making it what it was, but also that little 11-year-old girl from a rich family and all of a sudden the French Revolution started and you're on the cusp of maybe just getting murdered in the streets because of your wealth. Like, I mean, it was, it was bananas. The French Revolution hit and people were just getting marked all over the place. I mean, you were just, people were hiding, fleeing. Um, it was a very testy time. And I mean, she had a very tough upbringing as far as history goes. A tough go around, like a lot of people did. You know, it was the olden times. Medicine wasn't was today. Shocking she stayed alive till 88 years old. I mean, that, kudos to her. I mean, amazing. <laughs> I urge you to... Look up the story on your own. Go get the book. Read the book. It's a fantastic read. It's really fun to read. I am partial. I like wine books. Um, I like the stories. I like the history. <sighs> okay. Well, here's one for the books. We have each. Um, each can you see that? If you're listening, you can't see that. But that's the top of the um, the cage on top of the champagne bottle. That's her portrait. That is Barb Nicole Clicquot-Ponsardine. And then you have right here her symbol that she made as well that's described in the book, Vu Clicquot-Ponsardine, VCP. Um, really cool. Every single bottle you get to see her. Uh, I think it's really nice. Um a couple things I wanted to point out here at the end for you guys. I hope you all enjoyed today, by the way, and the story. I really like it. Ah, uh, sorry. Kind of maneuver old gimpy leg. Um, is all the different ways you can listen to this podcast and all the information that I put out. I have compartmentalized things. So I have my trusty floof next to me here. Um, Zoe, the Palm Psalm. The Palm Psalm on Instagram is where I will put all of my tasting reviews. They're going to be on there. Unless you want to pay me to um, review your product, then I'll be glad to put it on my main pages. But for now, all uh, tastings are posted on there. So after the podcast, you'll see my reviews on the wines and a more detailed write-up on those will be on the Palm Psalm on the Instagram page. Um for now, maybe in the future, I'll, you know, make some articles somewhere else. But for now, that's where those stay. My, the seller geek page on Instagram is for my business stuff. I run private wine cellars and collections. So any pictures and um, things with that goes on that page. Then on Instagram, um, the seller geek podcast as where all this stuff is going to be, all the stories and all these things, go over there to see that stuff. For now, obviously, some of it bleeds into the Palm Psalm and the Seller Geek for now. But here in the future, as traction goes on, um, just look for there for the podcast stuff. <laughs> I'm not going to be posting to so many different accounts all the time. We're just doing this here in the beginning stages of this. Um, my Facebook page has both uh, posts on it. 
Um, so this streams on the Facebook page called The Seller Geek. So you can watch it on the Facebook page if you're still a Facebooker. Um, I also have a YouTube page and the YouTube page streams as well. Um, also saves all the episodes. So you can go on YouTube and watch episodes on there um, if you didn't catch it live. If you want to listen to it, um, the audio of me stumbling with my shrieky, shrill voice, stumbling through stories, um, you're more than welcome to. It's on lots of different podcast outlets. Um, you can listen to me on my Spotify channel. I have an Apple channel. Um, I have an iHeartRadio channel. And I have um, some other channel I can't think of right now. I think one or two more. Um, I can post them later. So uh, I don't even know all the different podcasting channels. I was shocked getting into this that there were so many. I didn't even know. So um, there's lots of different outlets for you to be able to listen to this and also to watch it. Um, for Like I said, if you want to read up on my tastings and recommendations, go to the Palm Psalm. Zoe will tell you about them. Um, if you have any seller questions um, for my work, my job, um, then you can go on the Seller Geek. And then podcast is here. Of course, I'm always open to questions, suggestions, thoughts, everything. Um, please DM me. Um, ask away. I'm happy to answer any questions. Um, somebody asked me the other day uh, if I have the whole year planned out, all my episodes laid out. No, I do not. I do not have every episode laid out uh, for the entire year. Um, but I will say, prepping for this episode, I was thinking of kind of doing a fun one next time. And so I think next week, and let me know what you guys think about this. Um, I'm thinking about doing a sake episode. I have a lot of different sakes canned, and I think some Tetra Packs. And I think we're going to taste some sakes next week. You just kind of have a fun time chasing through and chatting about it and getting a little lit, a little numb foot. That sounds really fun. <laughs> so I think that's going to be next week's episode is going to be um, the world of sake. We're going to talk about it. Um, thank you so much for whoever tuned in on my rant today about uh, the wonderful house of Vuclico and her history and all the cool, really cool things she did. Um, I hope you enjoyed it, listening, gonna listen, whatever, and, um, thank you guys so much. I am going to sign out now. Sayonara. I'll see you next week. <laughs>